Galatians, uh, the book of Galatians, this epistle is written by Paul to the churches of Galatia, likely after Acts 15 and his second missionary journey, probably one of the earlier letters that Paul wrote, some argue even maybe the earliest. We know that Paul was in that area twice, from Acts 16 and 18, uh, about first time, then about three years later again. And he wrote because the churches that he started there became targets for this group we call the Judaizers. Um, <clears throat> basically, they were trying to bring people back to the Old Testament law by amalgamating that with the gospel as they preached it. And even after the gospel, as a Christian, you need to, even if you were saved, continue to do those things. So they would mix in circumcision, dietary law, things like that. And unfortunately, this group followed Paul a lot of places, and they became one of his biggest antagonists. There was an attack on the gospel which was then, as usual, augmented by attacks on Paul's character. Uh, one of the things I think that was very probably difficult if you were an enemy of Paul was he was very difficult to reason with. If you tried to just talk about the Bible, he was pretty good at just proving from the scriptures what his message was. So what happened is people would then try to uh, somehow attack the messenger, and they literally would attack him. But as we see here, even in churches, guys who weren't trying to kill him, they would say things like he wasn't a real apostle. He was just kind of an underling from the original apostles. The 12 original apostles didn't know what he was doing in these faraway congregations. He would be one way with Jews and another way with Gentiles. He was just trying to please everybody, tell them what they wanted to hear. So there's a number of things you could kind of get from the letter as we read through that he was being attacked, but it wasn't just him personally. It was a way to undermine his message. And for Paul, again, he personally didn't care what people said about him, but he cared very much about the gospel and about the message that he preached and the teaching and the commandments of Christ. So his defense that we're going to see here in the beginning is related to those things. And he's fighting for this church. They are not decided yet. Paul will say in chapter 5, he's, he hopes the best of them. But there was enough there that he was concerned. And this letter comes down to us in that regard. Uh, if you're a person who likes outlines... In terms of outlines, the letter is pretty easily definable. Chapters 1 or one and 2 are, you could say, personal, where Paul deals with personal things in his life and some of their accusations. Chapters 3 and 4 are doctrinal, and chapters 5 and 6 are practical. Uh, J. Sidlow Baxter, uh, a commentator, wrote a book called Explore the Book. is a book on the entire Bible. Uh, if you're a person who likes studying and overviews and stuff, this is a great book. And he does kind of an overview of every book of the Bible and picks out major themes and things. And in his intro, one of the things he says is this. I thought this was helpful. He says, we may well say, especially to young converts, read Romans to be grounded in Christian doctrine. Read Corinthians to be guided in Christian practice 
and read Galatians to be guarded against deceptive error. I think that's a wonderful kind of breakdown, and that's where we've been and where we're going here. And the epistle then, in terms of what Paul has to deal with that's going on in this church and some of the attacks on the gospel and the message of Christ in this church, end up being helpful for the church for all the ages. And it's part of why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul in writing these things. So, with that as kind of an intro, let's begin in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul opens up uh, kind of a customary greeting in some senses, but we'll get to other things being left out. Paul identifies himself, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, and He wastes no time now getting to some of his central themes in this letter. Again, he loves these believers. He most likely started all of these congregations. He was zealous for the Lord. He isn't just writing to people he doesn't know about. I'm sure he has personal people in mind as he's thinking about some of the false teaching there. And that's why he's going right at it in the beginning. And he sets the stage kind of for the issues he's going to address by a double negation right off the bat. You notice he says, Paul, an apostle, then this parentheses, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul, right off the bat, wants it clear that his apostleship is not from man or through man. The source is Jesus Christ and God the Father. He didn't uh, receive his apostleship from another human being or through human agency. There wasn't a denomination or a pope or a group of people that said, yes, you're an apostle. He says, the fact that I'm apostle comes straight from an act of God, and a very unique one at that that Paul will even admit in other places It was unique that he was an apostle, that Jesus appeared to him as one born out of due time, in a sense. But he goes right to his authority as divine, because his apostleship is going to be under attack. And again, he doesn't care about himself, but his message, again, is divine. And that's what he wants to get across. The only reason I'm an apostle and saying the things I'm saying to you are because they come straight from God. And the attack on his apostleship was an attack on his message, that you couldn't trust what he was really saying. And Paul wants them to know right off the bat, he doesn't need to jump to a bunch of other things. Again, he could defend himself by bringing up miracles, bringing up his church networks, bringing up his preaching. He just goes straight to divine authority, and he leaves it there. God is the one who made me an apostle. And if you have that divine authority, really, you don't need any other authority anyway. He doesn't need a man to stamp that off. This is true. So he goes right there, and he wants that clear. And not only that, he says, through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And I think particularly for hard 
religious, zealous Jews to come to the realization that God the Father raised a crucified Messiah from the dead was very difficult. It was difficult for them to think of their Messiah as a person crucified under their religious leaders in Rome. Paul knew that. He was that. And it literally took divine intervention for Paul to recognize, oh, that really is our Messiah. And he knew that. I think he understood the mind of these hardened kind of religious Jews, and he cared for them. And even that emphasis of where his authority comes from was important. And he throws in there, it was God the Father who raised him, Jesus Christ, from the dead. He brings in as well, he says, and all the brethren who are with me, to note that we're not sure who exactly all those brethren were. Maybe it was some from Galatia or others he had been ministering to. Uh, the idea, I think, there being that, again, Paul's not writing this epistle alone. These other believers are there who agree with him and what he is saying. To the churches of Galatia, pretty clear uh, historical geography for the most part, though. The, there is a little debate because the term Galatia or Galatians was used both for a people and a province. So what I mean is historically the people actually came from modern France. They were Gauls and they came down and they dwelt in a particular area. But then Rome called a larger province Galatia. So if you lived within that province, you would be a Galatian. Like if you live within Pennsylvania, you're a Pennsylvanian. But maybe you're from a Irish or Dutch or German background, right? So sometimes it was hard to tell whether they were talking about the province or the people. Uh, it seems like we're, we're specifically talking about those that were part of the southern province because that's where Paul traveled in the book of Acts. So people like to argue about these things. Um, but Paul knew who he was writing to and they knew who they were and they were Galatians. So we'll move on from there. If you really want to argue about it, you can do it. Verse 3. Now he's going to get into it a little bit more. Grace to you and peace from God, the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's typical greeting here, again, as a former zealot, he knew they needed it. He still lived in God's peace and God's grace. He knew he wouldn't have had peace in his life outside of God's grace. Again, uh, nowhere in the world can you find peace outside of the grace of God. The world talks about peace. It talks about it largely in relation to the absence of war. But, man, in America, we don't have war, but people sure don't have peace. Uh, more suicides than ever, more people medicated than ever, more families breaking down than ever. It is not peace that people have found in the absence of war. Uh, people lack peace. And you don't find that in a changing world, but in a divine God who acts to give us his highest and best things freely. Grace, you can find peace, because that never changes. And I think Paul, not only did he love those two words personally, because he knew them, 
I think they were also something that Paul knew he could say to any believer anywhere. And that would be true. He's writing to this church, they got a lot of issues. And he, he probably can't, he can't even commend them in the way he does some other churches we're going to see here. But he can say grace and peace to them. He can wish those things upon them. He can extend that to them, I think, in a true heart. And I think that's part of the reason this was a, one of his typical greetings, because he knew he could say that anywhere. And re- the reality is, any believer we run into, any Christian, no matter where they're struggling, we, we can wish and hope God's grace and peace in their life. And Paul, he wants to extend that. He knows it comes from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, now he's going to get, again, right into the central things he wants to talk about. He says, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul reminds them that it is the work of Jesus Christ, not their own works or Moses' works, which are going to be part of the issue. It's the work of Jesus Christ that allows and brings deliverance from the present evil world and allows us to experience grace and peace in God. He focuses by saying right off the bat, who gave himself for our sins. He's going to say in chapter 2, verse 20, who loved me and gave himself for me. He makes it both public and personal. The death of Jesus Christ was a giving of himself for our sins. That's the good news. That's the beginning of knowing grace and peace. If you're a person who's a sinner and you just are happy in your sin, then it's not good news for you. But when you realize, man, I'm a sinner and my sin deserves to be judged and I need God in my life and I can't have God end sin. And then there's good news that somebody paid for your sin and dealt with your sin. Then the gospel becomes what what is truly good news. Paul knows that these believers need to be reminded of this, that personally and publicly this was true. And it is the greatest gift that we've been given. As he said in 2 Corinthians, it's an unspeakable gift that he would give himself for our sins. That he might, why, deliver us from this present evil age. Certainly the giving of Christ in direct contrast to the works-based message, but also he's delivering us from our sin-styled bondage of our present evil age. Salvation is a deliverance to deliver us. It's a rescue operation because you and I are incapable of rescuing ourselves. That's why we need to be delivered We can't do it ourselves. Our works can't get us there. We can't do enough good works to earn salvation. Nobody can. And even if we do a little bit more than somebody else, it's still not enough. It's not perfection. There's only one person whose works could be offered, and those were Jesus's. So Jesus is the one who has to deliver us and rescue us from our present evil age, 
age being the time, the kind of uh, world that we live in. The, the age was different maybe for them, but it was evil for them, and the age is a little different for us, but it's evil for us. Every age has its own little form of evil. Maybe we'll say 50 years ago, the form that evil took in the culture and the way it worked in people's eyes looks a little different than it does today. But the reality is, outside of the work of Jesus Christ, we're all just like the world we live in. We were that evil, or if God graciously saved us younger and delivered us from it, you would be that evil if you weren't in his grace, if he hadn't delivered you, if he hadn't changed us and given us a new heart. And everyone would be just like the world system of our time. If we love our present evil age, well, something's wrong with that if we claim to be believers. But all of us have been delivered from this present evil age. God is working to save us and deliver us. Uh, Paul would say that he knew God was going to ultimately deliver him from this present evil age and bring him into his heavenly kingdom, no matter what he faced or went through. I believe it was Christosom who gives the example of a prisoner. He said a prisoner who is under judgment of death and also sick with a cancer that's killing him needs more than just pardon. He needs pardon and healing. He needs justification and sanctification. And he said all of us are like that. If, the, if we're just pardoned from our sentence of our crimes, we still have this disease called sin that's killing us. But Christ delivers us fully. He gives us justification. Those crimes that were hanging over our head, our death row sentence is removed. And the disease inside of us, he changes us. He makes us unlike our present evil age. Like the sin nature of the world that we live in and that's in us outside of Christ can't be affected at all. We're in the world, but not of it. John 17, Jesus would say, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. It would be nice if we got saved and just disappeared and went to heaven, right? I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We're delivered not to go back to the old sinful things or be like the present evil age, but from our sin and in it. These false teachers, while they were minimizing this work that was according to the will of God the Father, while they were marginalizing it, while they were magnifying their own works and their own ability to deliver, while also leading sinful lives, Paul's going to rebuke them about how sinful their lives are. They aren't living in the spirit but in the flesh. Paul, on the other hand, when he thinks about these things, notice what he does. He praises and magnifies the only one who deserves the credit for the work. And he sets all this up to begin to address the major issues. So verse 6. 
And what is conspicuous here is some of what is absent, but we'll read down a little bit. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Here, Paul now breaks from his normal writing routine. If you look at most of his other epistles, he will begin to commend the church for the good things happening in the church. He'll talk about their witness. Even the Corinthians, he commended them for some of the good things that were happening, some of the spiritual gifts they did have, the the people there that he knew. He will talk about how he's praying for the churches. He usually says a, a number of very positive things, but here there's none of that, and he just immediately goes into the heart of the issue. And I think that's because this issue was a life and death issue. He knew this was extremely serious in how these people were being subverted from some of the false teaching that was coming in the church. And instead, he just shares that he is shocked. Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Paul shocked first that he says that you are turning away so soon, uh, which seems to be most likely a reference, not that they had just been saved and were immediately turning away, um, because really it wouldn't be totally shocking for somebody who's brand new in the faith to, to get confused by things. The idea is he's shocked that they're turning away so quickly to a new doctrine after hearing it. Like, you guys just heard this stuff, and you're already giving up the truth for this other gospel that's not really the gospel? You're turning away from the things that you knew that affected their salvation? The Greek word, therefore, that idea of turning away has the idea of transferring allegiance It was used for soldiers deserting an army or revolting. Paul's shocked that they're shifting their allegiance. He's like, I can't believe that I hear that you are already shifting your allegiance from the gospel you had, from him who called you to something and someone else. Sadly, uh, it doesn't take much bad doctrine to take a hold of people's hearts and minds, particularly when it's a bad doctrine that they want to hear. Sometimes when things are difficult in life and we're put in positions where we have to choose the truth or there's a cost, people are looking for something else. And we don't know if that was the total situation there in the Galatian church, but It is shocking sometimes how quickly people can turn to something that's not the truth or that's a mixture of truth and lie, some bad teaching or doctrine. And Paul is marveling at that. Not only says that you're turning away so soon, but he's shocked that they're turning away, notice, from him who called you. To turn away on the gospel is to turn away from God. They're turning their back on him, the God who called them in the gospel. Paul's Paul's not saying you're turning away from me. He's saying you're turning away from him who called you. 
Again, this is why it's important. I'm not an apostle of, of my own authority or man's authority, but from God's. So you're not rejecting Paul. You're rejecting God. God's the one who called you through the gospel, through the good news. And now you're turning from him. Most likely, these false teachers, when they begin to say, if you get circumcised or whatever, their, their message was, you'll be closer to God, uh, which is a lot of the stuff kind of out there. But anything that makes me closer to God that's not the work of Christ, I need to be careful about. Because that's what makes me close to God. The work of Jesus Christ. And Paul wants them to understand that the turn from the gospel to shift your allegiance from God's testimony about his own son is to turn on him. And he's shocked from him who called you, notice, in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. They're giving up the simplicity of life in the grace of Christ. The grace of Christ is what set them free. It's part of the good news that we can live in the grace of God, knowing that God is gracious toward us all the time, that he doesn't stop that act of grace in our lives. And instead, now they're turning to something else more related to the law. The idea there of being called in the grace of Christ, of the languages, they've been called to live their lives in the sphere of God's grace that came to them in Jesus alone. I did not have a sphere of grace to live my life in outside of Jesus. Grace for myself, grace for others, grace for my sin or the sin of the world. There's a lot of religious things out there. And one of the things that is most notable about the false versions is there is no grace for sinners. But there is in Christ Jesus, and he is shocked that they have begun to turn away from this. He, he marvels. You so quickly, you just heard this and you turn away. And that means you're turning from God and from the grace that you've been called into to something else, something different. Paul sums up the teaching by calling it a different gospel. And the major point is it's not the good news whose source was the witness of God the Father about his satisfaction in the work of God the Son. That's not what the message is something else. And Paul wants them to understand what they're doing, what they're turning from. Verse 7, he says, which is not another. Now, your Bible might say in 6, another and another. Uh, the idea being, verse 6, he's saying a different gospel. And when he says, which is not another, he, the idea is not another of the same kind. It's not really another gospel. These, these two things aren't equal. He says, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul's clear it's not the same gospel with the same type and character. And you are being troubled, which, which is good. Uh, there should be something in us when you begin to hear false teaching that begins, it, it begins to trouble you. You're like, ah, something not right about that doesn't feel right. Even if you can't put it into words right away, you can say, there's something kind of off about this. 
And uh, uniquely, that word there for troubled is the same word used in Acts 15 when the early church met and dealt with this issue really in a huge way. Acts 15, 24 says this, Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, and here's what they were being troubled with, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It was important to recognize it was never the apostolic message come straight from God himself that you have to get saved and then be circumcised and keep the law. They, the apostles made it clear we gave no such commandment and that message was troubling the church because it wasn't grace. It wasn't the gospel. It wasn't the message that came from God or from his apostles. And they were doing this, Paul says, because they wanted to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. To pervert means to reverse or change to the opposite. It's to mix the gospel with something else. And to mix the gospel with something else is to change it entirely. You can't mix it without changing it. There's only one Christ to be proclaimed. Therefore, there's only one gospel for sinners. It's been said Christ supplemented is Christ supplanted. How are they doing this? Well, it seems their message was related to, again, the giving of the gospel and then life after the gospel. Because in chapter 3, verse 3, Paul will say, Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, you are now being made perfect in the flesh. So not only were they saying you got to actually get circumcised and... Uh, become essentially a Jewish proselyte to be saved, then you have to continue these things after you're saved. So both people who were hearing the gospel for the first time and those who were living afterwards were being troubled. This message was confusing them because what Paul had said was something different. They're perverting the gospel by focusing on what we must do in salvation. And again, this is very important. It might not seem like for us that this is big, but man, through church history, this has been huge. It's obviously the center of the Reformation. Uh, in Christian circles, largely one of the problems of the Catholic and Orthodox churches is this, that they pervert the gospel by adding things we must do to be saved. It's not to say that there are no Catholics who are born again or people in Orthodox churches who are saved, because there are. But the problem is, when the message gets mixed, it's very difficult to tell. Does a person believe they're saved because of the work of Jesus Christ, or because they pray the rosary, or pray to Mary, or have confessed to a priest, or do certain religious works, because the message is mixed? There's a difference between Catholic people and Catholic doctrine. Many of them don't even know strictly the Catholic doctrines. And the doctrine is bad because it, the gospel gets mixed with other things. And it's hard to tell in the moment of salvation, why does a person actually believe they're saved? Jesus says you need to be born again. And people don't understand what that means because they think, what do I got to do? And the Jews, that was what they thought. They had to do something that Rich young ruler runs to Jesus and says, good master, what must I do to be saved? Tell me what to do and I'll do it. 
And the message of the gospel is you can't do anything, <laughs> but Jesus already did it for you, and you believe. That is one part of it. Unfortunately, the Protestant realms have taken the same thing, and the perversion of the gospel comes in after the fact, where even after you're saved, they'll say, okay, only Jesus can get you saved, but then once you're saved, now you have to do these things to really be a Christian. And if you don't do these things, then you're not really a Christian. And you come to very legalistic forms of things like Hebrew roots movements that are still very much like this. This is a problem with the Seventh-day Adventist churches where they add things back from the law that we have to now keep. Again, it's not to say none are actually saved. Many actually are. But they add now burdens that the gospel doesn't actually put on people. Holiness movements, Baptist, Pentecostal movements, Protestant denominations, we could go down the list, all have their forms of people now after you're saved, well, okay, now you got to do this thing. It might not often be the same as the Jewish stuff, like get circumcised and keep this dietary law, but it relates to worships and festivals and practices and adding all these things that the Bible does not directly command to people. And it's taking them back to a human type of law and a work of the flesh. And Paul could just say the same thing. Having begun in the spirit, are we now going to be made perfect in the flesh? And what happens is people get troubled. They get troubled. It's not that they're not saved. Some of these people are genuine. Some of them are stuck in it. They're ignorant. Some of the people are just false teachers. There's a whole mix and gamut out there. But the problems that are happening in this church are still happening everywhere today. Paul knew that was going to happen. In Acts 20, verses 29 and 30, he said to the Ephesian elders, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And we still see this happening today. It's another gospel, and it's troubling people because it's perverted. It's been twisted. Things have been added in there that shouldn't be added in there. It's not actually the message of God or of Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to now address that uh, in a very serious way because he knows it can literally determine the salvation or the life of the believer. Because if that false doctrine continues to hang around, it will work against and be a burden that a believer could never bear. bear. The Pharisees could never bear those things. It was one of the things that Peter said. He said, you know that we and our forefathers, that we could never bear this burden. Now we want to throw it on the Gentiles. Nobody could keep the law like that when we've been set free. And Paul is going to address that uh, in verses 8 and 9. He says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Twice. Notice, Paul will say, if we 
or if an angel from heaven or if anyone. He just covers the whole gamut, right? <laughs> if it's us, if it's some supernatural being, if it's anybody else in the world, preaches anything other than what you received, let him be accursed. So the content should define the messenger and not the other way around. The message that is preached, the gospel that is preached, is more important than the messenger, be it friend, pastor, scholar, pope, so-called apostle, or even an angel. Paul clearly denies all pluralism, any other ways to God here, and any changing of the gospel through the years. His point is the message is what it is. God has given a definitive message. He gave it directly and personally to his apostles, and then that message has been passed down through the ages to us today, and it is exactly the same. The content has not changed. And there's always somebody who wants to add some content or just some content to the gospel, and that is perverting the gospel. And Paul speaks very seriously about it here. Even, he says, if an angel shows up, there is only one time, as far as I know, that we find the gospel on angelic lips in the Bible. And I find it very interesting. It's in Revelation 14, verse 6, where the Bible says this angel is going to fly around the whole world. John says, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having, listen to this, the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. When an angel uses it, it's called the everlasting gospel. It doesn't change. It's the same. And when an angel preaches it to every tribe, nation, tongue, and kindred, it is the same to every people, tongue, kindred, nation. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. God's work through Christ on the cross is not changing, and it is the same. It is the everlasting gospel. And to change it is a serious thing. To play with it as a human being is a serious thing. We have one mediator between God and man. We have one Savior. We have one name that we're called to believe in. And so we have one gospel. One gospel. And there's not something different out there, and it's not shifting through the ages. It's not shifting for cultures. Just because the evil of the age changes, the gospel hasn't changed. And even when it's on angelic lips, it's going to be the everlasting gospel. Now, some people <clears throat> think in verses 8 and 9 here that Paul is getting a little over the top uh, when he says, if we or even an angel from heaven would preach another gospel to you. Uh, I don't believe this is an exaggeration at all. I think Paul already knew the truth of satanic perversion of the gospel and I think he knew that it would come from both human and supernatural means through human history. And so I think he said this directly and on purpose. 
through, of course, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He just said in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Some of the largest cults in the world have started exactly like this. Supernatural beings have passed on false gospels that still run around the world. The Mormons, the Latter-day Saints, their website lists at least 24 angels that appeared to Joseph Smith. And one of their elders, Elder George Q. Cannon, this is right on their website, uh, said he was visited constantly by angels. Does that mean it's a lie? I actually believe it's true. But you know what that angel gave him? A different gospel. It wasn't the gospel of the Bible. It wasn't the everlasting gospel. It was a gospel with new things. It was a perverted gospel. And an angel showed up and gave him a perverted gospel. When the Bible says, you should be ready for that. The Mormons aren't the only one. Islam, Muhammad, was said to have encountered two angels that opened his chest and cleansed his heart with snow in his early years. Then around 40, he was praying in the desert, and he was visited by the angel Gabriel, supposedly, and began to receive the revelations of the Quran. Those experiences went on for a while. I'm not saying he didn't have a supernatural visit, but the gospel he received was not the everlasting gospel. It was a perversion. It could have been a real supernatural experience there. I bet there was. But it wasn't from the Lord. Right here in our area, right up the road, Emanuel Swedenborg. The Swedenborgs lived just up here. He was eating in a room when everything went dark. There was a frightening spiritual figure in the corner that basically made him freeze. That figure was said to be Jesus. Jesus told him humanity needed a new and definitive explanation of the Holy Scriptures. And he had been chosen as the vessel to receive that. And that he would have open access to the spiritual realm to receive those visions. Which apparently he did, and he wrote down plenty. Did a spiritual being show up to him? I bet he did. But you know what Paul says? If an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. It doesn't matter what spiritual experience people have. If the content is not the content that God Almighty passed down, let him be accursed, Paul says. And Paul extends that. That has happened. It is still happening. Uh, if anyone says that they get messages from angels, especially new revelations of Jesus or the gospel, run. If it's on YouTube, run. If I get up here and say that one day, run, leave, right? This, this stuff is serious. And Paul is, in fact, so serious here that he twice pronounces that anathema. I think he says it twice because some people, again, think, ah, oh, the Apostle Paul just got caught up in an emotional outburst and went a little over the top. No, he says, I'm saying this again because he's clear-headed and clear-hearted. 
and he is serious about what he's saying when he gives this stern curse. The word in the Greek for a curse there is anathema. It's used very sparingly in the New Testament, six times. And you can't get more serious than it. The word has a double meaning. It has the idea of something being set apart to God, but set apart to God for judgment. It is being removed from man's judgment for the purpose of being accursed or put under a curse. Luther, I believe, is the one who points out that it's the only passage where the anathema is pronounced against specific persons, heretical teachers that are perverting the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says this, false doctrine corrupts the life of the church at its source. That is why doctrinal sin is more serious than moral. Those who rob the church of the gospel deserve the ultimate penalty, whereas those who fail in morality have the gospel there to help them. God's very serious about the gospel because this is how he helps people. This is the first door. This is the foundation. And if you destroy the foundation, there's nothing left to help. And he is very serious about his truth as a definite, non-changing thing that can't be molded by people just because they're sincere or pray a lot or have spiritual experience. John the Apostle in 2 John verses 9 through 11 would say, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house or greet him, for he who greets him must share in his evil deeds. Paul and the rest of the apostles were given truth from God himself, and it was to be passed down as it is. Nothing added and not a word diminished. And unfortunately, if a man or angel tries to do so, Paul is very serious about how serious that is. He even puts himself under that curse. You notice he says, even if we, if I ever do this, let me be accursed. If this gospel ever gets changed. And it is a very serious thing to take the teaching of God and mold it for your own purposes. And unfortunately, uh, in our world, preaching has become like an art that you can basically just do whatever you want with it. And it almost doesn't matter. But God's message is a direct message to be given, not some clay to be molded by so-called theological artists. And God doesn't play around with people who play with this message. That's why James says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing we shall receive a stricter judgment. Uh, that is why I asked all of you to pray for me. First Timothy chapter 4, where Paul says to Timothy, if you continue in these things, in that doctrine, you will save both yourself and those who hear you, which sounds great to me. And you should pray that for all the pastors here. Because it's a serious thing to take the word of God and to say that this is what God says. And that's why we just want to open our Bibles and teach what is said there. And it is an extremely serious thing to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and begin to pervert it. 
to add to it what is not there or take away from it something that is there. And if it seems a little over the top, I will just point out that Jesus said in Mark 9, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It's pretty serious. It's pretty serious. Because in the end, God knows it is the most serious thing happening on the face of the earth. What you believe about the gospel is going to determine whether you go to heaven or hell for all eternity. And so he's pretty serious about the gospel. God the Father is pretty serious about the work of God the Son. It's never a joke to him. It's not changing. It is an everlasting message. It is an everlasting message of good news for sinners. And anybody who's going to take that and pervert it for their own purposes, you're not fighting a human being, you're fighting God. And Paul says, if it's us, if it's an angel from heaven, if it's any other person, let that person be anathema, eternally damned, set aside to God for personal divine judgment. He's pretty serious because Paul knows it is serious, and that's why he just gets right to it here with these Galatians. He knows they need to see this and understand it. So verse 10, he asks now, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Most people think what he's doing here in asking this is, uh, this is one of the kind of indictments against him where people would say, oh, Paul just does what he does to please people. He says one thing here. When he's with Gentiles, he says another thing when he's with Jews. But Paul's asking, okay, here's my message. You just heard me. Am I saying this to please men or God? That, Paul's message didn't exactly make most people happy with him. He got beat up and stoned and thrown in jail, made people angry most of the time. I don't know about you, but most people don't like saying things to other people that you know are going to make them angry. We do live in Philadelphia, so we might have a higher percentage of that. But for the most part, most people don't naturally like that. Paul's like, why am I saying these things? Am I doing it for men or God? Do I seek to please men? The idea being, is that my aim? Because he says, if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul says, my point is, I know I cannot aim to be Christ's servant and aim to please men. The two are mutually exclusive. Now, we can only have one true target. Pleasing people can be a byproduct, which is fine. There's a centurion in the Gospels, and he pleased the Jews because he was kind, he was just, he provided for them. Right? There, there are kings that did well, and they pleased their people. There, there are plenty of great stories of people who please other people by doing the right thing. Like, that's fine. But that's a byproduct of their goal, which was pleasing God. Pleasing people as a byproduct, fine. As a goal, terrible. And our true target can only be pleasing our Heavenly Father. And Paul knew 
that pleasing God would come into conflict with men. And, and I can't actually want both of them. One is going to win out in the end. For the religious leaders, this was from the very beginning. Jesus drew that line. John 12 tells us in verses 42 and 43, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Right in the beginning, there was a challenge. If I come out and be a follower of Jesus and seek to please him, I am going to displease these people. I'm going to lose my place in the synagogue. I am going to come into conflict. And human nature still faces the same thing that those early religious leaders face, that Paul faced. It's natural in, in us to want to please others or to be a blessing. That's all fine. But ultimately, I'm not created for those people, I'm created for God. And when I am pleasing him, I will be the greatest benefit to others. Tozer, in his book, Man, the Dwelling Place of God, says this, The desire to please may be commendable enough under certain circumstances, but when pleasing men means displeasing God, it is an unqualified evil and should have no place in the Christian's heart. To be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with men. This is such a common truth that one hesitates to mention it, yet it appears to have been overlooked by the majority of Christians today. Paul's saying right off the bat, I know I can't be someone who pleases men and is a servant of God. The false teachers, they were there to please men. But Paul says, I cannot be someone who truly is a servant of God, seeking to please him, and somebody who aims to please men. You want to be someone who serves the Lord, serves the Lord in your marriage, in your family, at your workplace, then this has to be a defining feature for you. This can help you keep the right path, what's pleasing to God, not any of those other people or any of those other circles. And the only way I'm actually a real help in those other circles is when I seek to please him first. I find it interesting, writing to the Thessalonians, that Paul was only there with them for a short while. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul said this, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through Jesus Christ. Paul's with this community of believers just a couple weeks, and he said, you guys know how to please God. You know how to do it. Grow, abound more and more in those things. In a short time, and they already knew, you know how to please God. That was what they knew enough to know that's what our aim is. That's what my goal is. And I don't know about you, life can be very confusing and it's wonderful to be able to bring it back to the central thing and say, okay, Lord, I know if I'm pleasing to you, if I can lay my head down on my pillow at night and know that I please you, then everything else is fine. That was Jesus's testimony about himself. I do only those things that please him. 
is what the scripture says about the heavenly angels that honor the Lord. They are ministering spirits that do his pleasure. And it is what you and I as his sons and daughters are called to. To walk in the way that we know is pleasing to him. And if we're going to be a servant of his, even in how we preach the gospel, my aim has to be pleasing to him. Because if it's not, if I want to please my friend that's homosexual, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to change the gospel. Or if I want to please somebody else that's in sin, I'm going to change the gospel. Or if I want to please this religious community, I'm going to change the gospel to meet their deal. If I want to draw men after myself, make my own movement, maybe the enemy will know that. Maybe he'll even send me supernatural experience, help me along the way. But if I want to please him, I just go back to what he says and to his truth. And you don't, you don't need me to figure what that is. You just read it yourself. He could tell you very easily what's pleasing to him. That's why he's given us his word. And Paul would simply say, look, before he begins to get into it all, why am I saying these things? Am I saying these things because I want to persuade men? I'm here just to talk with people to my, win men to my side? Or because I'm serving God? Do I seek to please men? Am I, am I writing this letter? Am I saying these things? I don't think Paul's throwing out anathemas to please men. I can't be a person who seeks to please men and be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. They're mutually exclusive. I can only have one true aim, and it has to be pleasing him. So he is hitting these guys hard. Again, I will say in chapter 5, he mentions in verse 10, he says, um, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. So he's, he's understanding this Galatian church is in conflict, and he's saying, I have confidence you're going to come through this, but he has to hit them hard so that they know what the real stakes are, and they can see what it is that's leading them astray. So important passage, I think, Good reminders for us, but also, look, if God tarries, you're going to talk to people who have a skewed gospel. You're going to talk to people who might start getting pulled astray. Being able to go back to this passage and show them pretty clearly what God says about his own word and his gospel is a good place to have in your repertoire as you talk with folks. So let's stand. We're going to pray. I would just say as well, if you're here tonight and you're not actually saved, well, the good news is that Jesus loves you and he gave himself for you to deliver you from this present evil world, to do a work on your behalf that you can never do on your own, and to give you a new heart, a new life, a new spirit. And if you want that, you just believe in his work and the testimony of God about his own son.
If you want to do that, you can do it right where you're seated, but come up afterwards, talk with one of us. We'd love to give you a Bible, love to encourage you. But uh, for the rest of us, let's pray. Lord, we thank you again just for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Most of us here can say you sent the gospel to us in truth. And you changed our lives. And we're thankful, Lord, that we weren't given a skewed gospel or a perverted one. We're thankful for the grace and the peace that we have in you. And, Lord, we pray that that everlasting gospel would be on our lips and that you'd give us open doors and free course in people's hearts and lives to share it. So we thank you, Lord, for who you are and who you will always be. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.